0: Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This episode is the second part of my interview with the design engineer Albert Williamson Taylor who's a founding director of the practice AKT2. In the second part of our conversation, which was recorded at One Old Street Yard in January of 2023, we focused more on his foray into independent practice, the social context of design and construction, as well as Albert's outlook on the future of engineering. We began, though, where we left off on the first part of our conversation, which was with Albert's experience working at the influential engineering practice of Tony Hunt. So here it is. Part 2 of my conversation
1: with the engineer Albert Williamson-Taylor. What I realized very, very quickly as a very young structural engineer was that the industry very quickly was basically becoming, working to the lowest common denominator. They used the code as a reason not to do things or not to investigate things, not to challenge things. But to tell you the truth, I also realized politically, very quickly, when I looked around me, that as a black structure engineer, I can't do what everybody else is doing. Mm. If I do every, what everybody else is doing, I'm finished. I have to be in a position where you've got to be more challenging, you've got to push the envelope a bit, and Tony Hunt was very good at that. But I knew about Tony Hunt, and the reason I joined Tony Hunt, was partly my frustration where I was, basically not being recognized for the work I was doing. And secondly, my old boss then went to Anthony Hunt and he was always trying to get me across, saying, look here, they are doing some interesting stuff. You know, you'll fit in here. And I think in a way it was right. And so I went over and joined Anthony Hunt. Thinking more
0: about the kind of approach to engineering that Anthony Hunt took, Mm. And his, his influences.
1: Oh, his influence amazing.
0: There's this engineer, Frank Newby, who was really involved in the Festival of Britain. Yes. And this structure, the Skylon?
1: The Skylon was, he worked with, um, um, there was Arabs, Samueli. Mm. Felix Samueli did the Skylon. Mm-hmm. Anthony Hunt worked for Felix Samueli.
0: Okay. And then the London Zoo Aviary? with Cedric Price. Um, He worked on projects like Aristotle American Embassy, which AKT2 are now involved in refurbishing. And I mean, Anthony Hunt, Frank Newby, these are examples really of design engineers. Yes. And they exist in this tradition of engineering that figures like Ova Arup also belong to. And of course, Arup exists as a... A large, a large practice market. today, yes. and one that you're in competition with now, interestingly. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me more about the kind of design work you were doing at Tony Hunt's, what? and also who
1: you met when you were there. Oh, it was fantastic. It was a, an interesting experience. When I joined Tony Hunt, they had a London office, small London office. In my view, there were three very good designers. So Neil Thomas, Steve Molly. And Nick Green. And while I was there the office was was the most chaotic office I've ever worked in. But there were ideas flying all over the place. It was a it was like this sort of uncontrolled engineering hub. It was like a bar house at Anton Hans. It was so exciting. It was chaotic. And I felt like I'm I can provide a bit of structure to the place so for me and when I can remember when I joined the first week there was the Sackler Galleries Royal Academy project and it was being done by an engineer an associate and I remember he walked in and said that's it I'm not working on this project so-so the architects won't listen, so-so-so don't so, so you know what they're doing and everything. I'm not doing it anymore. And I thought, how can you just drop a project? You are not know, even talking to your senior person, you just decided you're not doing it. This is crazy. So I can remember I said to Nick, oh, I'll have it. I need to do the Foster's. I said, I'll have it. He said, no, 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 no. He says a poison chalice. He said, don't touch it. <laughs> He said, don't touch it, it's a poison. I said, no, I'll have it. And I can remember I showed up at the first principal's meeting. And I walked in, I was in my late 20s. At the head of the table was Roger De Gray. He was the president of the Royal Academy. Very well established, well known things, artist or whatever. And he was one of the academicians and everything. He was the president. And then Spencer DeGray Gray was there from Foster's in the project. Then there was a guy called Doug Chalmers, who used to run Bovis. Then there was a guy called Clive Morby, who was the senior partner at DLE. Some of these names listeners might not are. They were the giants of the industry. Mm. They were all on the project. And then on the engineering side, it was just me sitting there, this very young guy, I had no clue. And I can remember sat there, and the principal's mate was to talk about how the industry is and how they can get this project through. I had no idea. And when they came to structure, can I can remember they asked, the first minute they asked structure Say, so where do you think we're on this? And I just said, mumbling. And Doc Chalmers was sitting next to me was the guy from Bovis and he saw what happened so the next four weeks later the next meeting he basically rang me up before the meeting and says Albert how are you doing I said, fine he said where are we on this so I told him and where are we on that we had this chat I didn't know I thought he just wanted some information which it was then when we got to the next principals' meeting and I sat there and it came to structures. As I started talking, he just jumped in. He said, Yeah, structures is fine. We've had a conversation. I know what's going on. And he really presented my whole structures for me. Mm. So I could see I was struggling in the with the you know, with the people they were all in their fifties, sixties and you know. Roger DeGray was probably in his seventies. Well, and he could see that I was the one struggling. We knew the work was happening, so he just did my presentation for me. Hmm. And he did that for the next two or three meetings so that I can get an understanding of how that forum worked. And by the time after that, we both then started bantering and interjecting, and then he left me to it. Wow. And I could, I always remember, I. I was so grateful for him, basically recognizing the challenges we all had, because that project was Foster's first refurbishment building. It was their very first refurbishment; it was a Grade One listed building, and he protected my position.
0: So here is the contractor. Yes. At this high level. A
1: very high level meeting. Yes.
0: And here is the engineer, 20-something years old. Yes. Black in a room. Yes. <laughs> most likely full of entirely white old Exactly. Men. And in a way, it's kind of staggering to, to hear how Doug Chalmers was there for you.
1: He was, yeah.
0: It's so, in a way, quite moving to hear of this person standing up for you and in a way gently guiding you along because equally he could have just called up your director and said get this guy off the job thank you, (laughs) exactly so there's these, these very subtle but incredibly meaningful acts of mentorship
1: absolutely, he was definitely one of them
0: I just think that increasingly the relationship between a contractor and an architect or an engineer for that matter, is incredibly adversarial.
1: But not really. I think it's adversarial. If I'm honest, AKT, we don't have an adversarial with a Mm. We, I can actually show you, we have letters from all the contractors saying they love working with us. Mm. The issue is that there's a level of arrogance in our profession. And I'm saying that quite openly. It's a level of arrogance and the whole idea of structural engineering is always been seen as a black art back then if the structure engineer says you need a 600 deep beam across this opening that's what you got to do nobody question it nobody say well can we have a 530 or can we make it flat or whatever they could only say that if people understand what structural engineers do and how they do it and for me that was the most important in a way that was always been a situation I've always had an affinity and, a, and an empathy for architecture. For me, a structure being a structure is wrong. A structure being a designed architectural form is right. So, and I will defend that till the day I die. It's always been a 40 of mine. So with a contractor knows how to build it. So engineers should respect contractors more than the other way around. Because they will tell you how to source the material, how they can do this. So from day one, I've always had a thing to work with them and work with them. Mm-hmm. Because I want this project to work. Mm-hmm. I want it to look beautiful. Mm-hmm. I want people to say the projects I've worked on are beautiful and I mean the word beautiful. And you can do that by being arrogant to these guys. They would just turn and see if it can be done.
0: I love also that you refer to engineering as a black art, which I, you meant a dark art. Dark, art, but yes, <laughs> yes I meant a dark art. But I think it's a. We could start to think of it in a way as a black art. Maybe we'll come back to that. <laughs> a, yeah. We'll come back to that yeah. association in a yeah. moment. But let's move on now. Yeah. To your encounter of. Robin Adams and Kara, who I think you met at Anthony Hunt? Yes. You met your future business partners at this practice. And, I mean, it's interesting from the very beginning, there is this merging of different Mm. identities, different attitudes and aptitudes and cultures. Um, But then the work that you sought early on was also quite unconventional.
1: Well I drove that um, because I knew very quickly. I looked into Fosters um, because having done the Royal Academy there was only one black person in an organization of that size and I thought whew and this is you've got to think architects are then We're there. So you're saying
0: architects are on the top and engineers are on the bottom? In a way, yes.
1: And I was thinking this is going to be, right, this is a challenge. But being forced into a position where it was untenable for me to stay, having all these projects, and I can remember I was doing the, the floating bridge. I won the floating bridge at Canary Wharf you know, the, the future system mm-hmm. bridge, I, I was the one that came up with the concept of that, with Ian, and he was brilliant architect, miserable. Um, but we looked at that, and I can remember saying, we've oh got this um, military pontoons, and, and, but it's, it's on a tidal canal mm-hmm. that changes level, a meter. And they want an opening bridge and a tidal and a floating base. It's possible. And I can remember I was I was literally giving my daughter. She was you know just had a daughter, a bath and we're playing dockies. And the idea came to me and it says, submarines. Yeah, dockies. We're bouncing docks in the bath.
0: Mm.
1: And I can remember said to yeah I got the answer. We're going to pre stress the pontoons into the water, we're going to make them.
0: I just want to pause on this pontoon project for a moment. Yeah. And I think it's worth stressing the fact that for you, the kind of work that you were seeking out, having just established your own practice, it couldn't be conventional. No. Because... Working within the conventions of structural engineering would have kept you yeah. at the bottom, yes, and so you
1: had no choice I had no choice it was it wasn't just it was survival as well you see, you've got to think about it like this. The issue here was being put in a box, and it's a constant thing, even up till now i'm still trying you know and you cannot for me, I just can't be put in a box. The opportunities to 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 contribute is very strong with me. We were in a very difficult situation at Wiremantony hands because once they made everybody redundant, there's only two groups left. So we then go. I got promoted to an associate then. Without any pay rise, no change of conditions, and I can remember. I thought right, better start. Get my brown shoes. Get those brown shoes out. And black shoes out. <laughs> and I can remember the first, and this is not a joke. The first phone call I made was to a guy called Barry Horrell, who was head of development for Linton's, who did all of BAA Linton's development at Heathrow. And I'd done a project with them, which is the BAA headquarters. So I can remember I rang him up and I said... Barry I'm leaving we're just getting to the end of that project I said I'm leaving he said oh that's a shame so so I, he said what are you going to do I said well we're thinking about opening our own practice he said, are you opening your own practice or you're thinking about it I said we're opening our own practice he said great I've got a job for you if you want it hmm. he said we want to do a research on sheds storage sheds I said, shed's the shed. He said, yes, but we think we're paying too much for it. And it's not in the design and everything. So we're doing a three-month research. And if, do you want to do the engineering? He said, the fee is 30 or 32K for three months. And I was thinking, what? I haven't even started the practice yet. <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, he said. At the time, that's quite a high fee. That's a very high fee for three months. And I said, yes, I'll have it. And he said, it's yours. He was a real supporter. Mm-hmm. And we called it Project BMW. And we came up with a really cool idea. The solution, coming back to your point about contracting, mm-hmm. the solution we came up with was every shed in the UK was being built at six meters. This is from the old empirical sign. And then, then people started doing nine meters. And at nine meters, you needed a crane. <laughs> to put the purlins in the thing in. Mm-hmm. We then moved in and said, no, don't do it nine meters. Yeah, seven and a half meters. Because seven and a half meters, the weight of the purlins and the cladding rails, you can get three people or four people to live. You don't need a crane. So the whole cost of having a crane running around this thing bob, we eliminated it. That was the solution. Mm-hmm. And put the offices, make it a bit taller, put the offices inside the sheds mm-hmm. and create a glazed roof to it.
0: I mean, it's a perfect example of understanding the
1: system, understanding
0: the constraints, yeah. and then working around it. around it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this, <laughs> this is when I think we can start to consider engineering as a black art.
1: Thank you. <laughs> so, so, you gave us that project. That was the first phone call I made. The next phone call I made was the National Gallery. I knew they were looking for an engineer. They wanted us to hunt. They they did some investigation. They asked who was the engineer that did the Royal Academy. So I rang the guy and he said, oh, yes. He said, is that a I said, yeah. He said, yeah, you're the engineers. Would you like to do it? This was a refurbishment of the whole of the National Gallery in Dublin. And we got that job. um, Almost immediately, we got these two projects, even before we started. Then the third one was we are doing a competition for the Rainforest House in, in Hanover in Germany. It was a competition which we won because we used ETFE. And everybody always thinks the ETFE foil was done at Eden Project. Eden Project was, at, was being done at Anthony Hunt. The original Eden Project scheme was glass. Hmm. We looked at, I looked at ETFE with a guy called Ray Ho, who was a student, he did engineering, then he went to do architecture. Hmm. And he rang me when I was at Tony Hunt and said, oh, I'm doing this thing for my project and everything. I rang Tony Hunt and he said, I should talk to you, whether you help me with my project, which I did. And he left and he did this competition. National competition, you know, big competition. We wanted <laughs> to do the rainforest house and then it became part of Expo 2000 mm. the South America and we decided back in 1995 we we're going to use 9596, we we're going to use ETFE foil because it allows UV rays through it which is great for plants glass doesn't it diff- ref- Refracts it and you got condensation and all of that. So it was the first time ETFE was used in a garden situation and when we started that was when Grimshaw's then changed with Anthony Hunt when we started and we we're doing that mm-hmm. because our client who won that competition, architect who won that competition with was then was then asked to sit on the board of the Eden project and he said to them we're using glass look at what these guys are doing
0: There's another early project I wondered if we could talk about, yeah, which is this footbridge in Reading. Yes, (laughs) which you had touched on briefly in a talk you'd given. Yes, I think this was at the AA. A long time ago, yeah, in 2021. Yeah, um, you gave a a keynote lecture online at the AA and. You were talking about this footbridge in Reading. It never was built in the end. It but never was built. It yeah. sounded like it was a formative project nonetheless. It, it embodied a lot of the interests and ideals that AKT2 then carried forward into other work. And I wondered if you could talk about that footbridge and why it was so instrumental for you at the beginnings of the practice.
1: Well, uh, I, got a, I met a guy who was, because when we, when we started the practice... And the brown shoe and black shoe was important. Mm. And we used to get crash all the parties. We didn't know anyone. Mm. So we used to get crash all the architects' parties, project managers, QSs. And I met this guy. And he was a development manager for a practice, a a firm that had a lot of land in. They are looking at developing some hotels, hotels and stuff in Reading and he needed a footbridge. He said, would you like to look at this footbridge? And I said to him, I said, yes. I said, well, can we look at it in a different way? Rather than saying you want a bridge from here to there, and it was across the dual carriageway, why don't we put the parameters of all the constraints in? And we use a computer to generate a form. We give it all the parameters. So we want a flat surface, this wide, and it, get it to generate the most efficient type of bridge. So I got these two scriptors, uh, and they're quite interesting. They're both professors now. One is at Harvard, and uh, he was in Singapore. And I got them and I said, Right, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try and get this stuff. So, so we're going to develop these parameters. We're going to develop that. And we did it. And it came up with the most amazing form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By just putting the constraints in and let the computer generate the form. And what you're
0: describing is early parametric design.
1: Very early parametric. I mean, some seriously early parametric. They had to write, had to write the codes. And, um, and then I said to them, you guys are going to present it to the client. And they freaked out. I kind of, they really freaked out. I said, no, guys, you've developed this. So I said, I'll be there to interject. So I took them down. And it presented to the client and it was terrible. They did not know how to describe what they've done. They got too technical and everything. So he said, this is not going to work. We've got to present to the main client and everything. So I said, it's okay, we'll, we'll brush it up. So I said, look, next one, I'll present it. You guys interject, give the technical, but i not going too much. I presented it and they loved the idea, but the project never happened. But that then led to something else. The same team led to doing uh, we've got a biometric, bioclimatic in-house. Mm. And they they were instrumental in writing the software for that. <laughs> where we were the first engineers where we're doing CFD analysis for wind comfort and everything
0: I mean it's interesting hearing you describe this Footbridge project and understanding how it's formative on different fronts Mm. on the one hand you're developing script that becomes integral to a branch of the future practice on the other hand you are performing a kind of mentorship that you yourself experienced earlier on in your career You are cultivating a team, and you are growing a practice yourself. And I think that is so interesting to hear you recount that experience of letting these colleagues of yours, these employees of yours, fail, <laughs> <laughs> and then coming well, you're, in and you're ready to catch them. <laughs> exactly, you got to
1: be ready to catch them. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: So on different levels, um, it sounds like it was incredibly formative.
1: It was, I mean, we are doing some really incredible stuff. And in a sense, that team we've gone to do, you know, we did the, the East Beach Cafe mm-hmm. was with that team, you know.
0: Maybe that's a good place to go next, yeah. actually. So the East Beach Cafe mm. is an early project by Thomas Heatherwick. Mm. And when we look at that project, we think about the architect's expression <laughs> we think about formal exuberance and we rarely think about the engineer's expression i think no. and this is
1: a kind of recurring
0: concern of yours i
1: think i don't think it's a concern no no i it's not it's a concern if i'm being honest that bit is not a concern at all well this is interesting i mean I think the question I want to
0: get to around this project is where does the authorship
1: lie? I think the authorship of what it is lies with the architect. But the issue here is not about authorship. It's about authorship of the engineering design. Because if you look at some of the most beautiful projects, and I use the word beauty and sustainable. For me, beauty encompasses encompass all of this. Because people want to be there, they want to use it, etc. It's where there's an amazing collaboration between the the person who had the first vision of for that form is which is the architect, and the people who allow them to get there where we come in. So my starting position as an engineer is I talk to an architect, you ask the right kind of questions, you say, What can we do about this? And they said, This is what I'm trying to do. I think, whoa, that could be really cool. Now how do we then have the engineering authorship to take that, not just what they want, but even better, using the engineering knowledge, materials and everything, which we have a uh, experience for. Some of that means you've got to break the code, you've got to break the rules, you've got to change things. And that is where the, is the recognition of that engineering design authorship. That's the issue, not the authorship of the whole project, so I don't have a conflict with that. I've never had a conflict with that. Mm-hmm. So, in my my experience as an engineer, I've always worked with very good architects. We get on very well. It's not a problem, because you're helping them create vision. the
0: vision. And the, I mean, off mic, we've discussed a way of describing this relationship, and mm. this term um, or this analogy of the midwife came up. And I wonder if that's one that you agree with, if that metaphor makes sense to you, where there's a vision that's preformed, and it's your role as the design engineer to help realize it. Yes. And I think this relationship between the architect and engineer, as it's played out, for example, through your relationship with practices like Heatherwick, like Hadid, like Ajay like LSOP. Mm. It seems like it's always this way. And I just wonder, is there ever a moment where you see a project and think it could have been otherwise? Or you have this urge to change the direction or imprint your own ambitions on this scheme?
1: Um, That's a very, very good point. I've never... If I'm honest, I do understand the sort of star architect position and all of that. I really get it, but I most of the time I ignore it because the only reason they in that position is because they do good projects. They create great spaces. They create structures. And and what I'm, in my mind, trying to answer your question is do you then imprint some of yourself in that process? Which inevitably you do, you have no you have no choice because if this is how they want to do it and you come up with two or three better ways, any architect of intelligence will say, actually, that's a little bit better. I like that because it makes this a bit better. And for me, it's how do we improve it? And that improvement necessary may not be engineering. It may be the fact that you're telling them we need to start this project three months earlier because this is the situation on the market or this is what the contractor can do. We're not doing concrete, we're gonna do steel, why? Because, so in a sense, that's always what's spinning in my head all the time.
0: I'm interested in your identity within the context of AKT or AKT2 as it's now known, where, I mean, you described in in other interviews that your agenda was always to stay out of the limelight. You didn't really want to teach and you never, until recently, gave public lectures. Yes. I mean, of Kara is the more recognisable public-facing director on the practice. And something seems to be changing.
1: We all had roles to play. A triangle is a very strong form, always stable. And in that case, nobody mentions Robin Adams. Robin's role was to pretty much run the business. We, for us, which is important, because we've seen businesses, we know what not to do <laughs> from coming from where I'm Anthony Hans. I'm, a high, I'm very dyslexic. I'm highly dyslexic. Hmm. Very. Hmm. And I mean, I'm right at the top of the scale. I know numbers. I picture numbers in my head. Somebody will give me the telephone number. And I'm lucky to remember it. Someone will tell me their name. I've forgotten in 30 seconds. But one thing I think everybody I'm very good at is design. Somebody had to create a design culture. Not from a rhetoric point of view. From a reality point of view in the practice. And drive the design forward. Which is what I've done. What Hanif is good at is selling what we've done. To the public, so he was. It's no. It's it's not a thing. But he sits on the committees and everything. You can't sit on the committee and run a whole studio in, in in New York and do the amount of work we do. I always see the practice as my practice because I was the one that started. Let's do a practice Let's take this journey. I was the one that drove it. But I also recognize that. Up until very recently, the British public wasn't ready to recognise a black guy in the role of what I'm playing. So forcing it was not the issue. It leads to disaster. I've watched. I watched Zaha. I, I can remember sitting with Zaha. She telling me the story of the Opera House. Right. This is the... the Welsh Opera House, which right. she won, she got. And I can remember sitting with David where he won this amazing hotel on Piccadilly where and I even helped put him, you know. This is David IJ. David okay. IJ. And it, even after he's won, and one of the most beautiful is that they still took it off him with various super silly reasons. So I'm not, I'm mindful of all of that. Um, but I think society is now ready to actually listen to a black person in my position whereas before they were not it didn't matter what you said or how you said it you needed somebody of eloquence which Hanif is strategic so his role has always been that Mm. it's a bit skewed right now because people are still not sure how to deal with it it being well they still people are still not totally comfortable with a black person in the role i play i see that come up over and over hmm. you would be surprised when 2022 like 23 just started and things have happened which i are thinking why is this happening and you you put yourself 20 or 30 or 40 reasons and you say, no, yeah, that's fine, they're okay with that, they're okay with that, they're okay with that. Then there's always one. And you can't find a logical reason. Um and I've I've had a number of and I think part of the reason is I'm under a lot of pressure as well from the diaspora. And from if I'm being honest, from a lot of white consultants and friends mm. saying, Albert, you need to be out there because we need you to help people to understand, you know. I do a lot of stuff in bringing young people through, teaching. I train most of the engineers in our practice.
0: I wonder if we could pick this apart a bit and start with this point about the African diaspora you just mentioned. What kind of pressure are you experiencing on that front?
1: I am experiencing a huge amount of pressure, not just the African, but the West Indies, you know, basically both from the States Mm -hmm. and here.
0: And is it a pressure to usher in a new generation? Of...
1: No, 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 it's not that. I think I'm probably, you know, I'm old enough now, I've got a lot of white hair. I'm almost seeing that I'm, you know, in terms of providing a profile that allows the next generation to feel, actually, we can do this. Mm-hmm. People are not aware of, you know, my position, what I've done, whatever. And if we, we need You know, we need uh, something to look up to, to say, oh, wow, this can happen. I'll give an example. I gave one talk at a secondary school and five, one female and four black kids in their A-levels all went to engineering. I only did one lecture, Hmm. and now they're all finished. When I talked to them, they said, we didn't even know a black person can do what you're doing. And that is exact words. So you start thinking, you have a level of responsibility. And that level of responsibility is to, is to encourage and tutor. And I'm not just talking about engineers, I'm talking about architects, I'm talking about m and in the industry. To sort of tutor them to say, look here, this is a profession you can go into. Yes, it's open for you. It's harder because in the past, I can remember I was asked by the RIBA Years ago, to mentor three or four black architects, which I did. And as soon as they were qualified, three of them left the industry immediately. Mm. Only one stayed. Mm. And I said, why? He says, too much aggro. Just can't cope with it. Too much, too, too much aggression. Aggression. So they just decided. And I could not. I said, well, you're already here. They said, no.
0: So this is the kind of pressure you're describing. Yes. This, the, the energy and effort, really in, in I guess, first of all, being exemplary, <laughs> but then also mentoring and mentoring. inviting in this new generation of people of color into into engineering and architectural well,
1: practice. That's something I've been doing for a long time, but mentoring women into the industry, mentoring... You know, we have probably the most diverse team in AKT, but any other um, en- engineering practice. I could almost say that with a, a lot of confidence. I remember the last time we checked, we had 34 nationalities. Mm. You know, um, and in terms of pushing the design side of the work we do, I've always been the one doing that. Mm. It's always been mentoring and, you know, dealing with, I've been doing that for a long time. From school to college to universities, I've been doing that for a long time.
0: So in a way, this decision to start to become a more public figure has to do with society's readiness.
1: I really believe that's the case. For my part, I think it's society's readiness. To 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 hear, hear hear
0: a black engineer. Yes,
1: to hear in terms of within our industry, what we are contributing and what we are doing. Because before, they didn't want to hear. Uh, it's fascinating. I went to a site with a client, big client, big client, I'm thinking whether I should name them or not. <laughs> um, and we went to a meeting on site, children around the site, and on the way out, he said to me, he said, Oh, but this is really bad. I said, what? He said, I just realized that I go to these sites and majority of the black people I see on site are the ones doing low labor work or security or cleaning. I don't see any of them, even in the contractor's boardroom or in the meeting rooms or whatever. He just came out with it. I didn't, it wasn't a conversation we were having. And I sort of felt it was his own way of apologizing for the situation mm-hmm. that he finds the realization that there needs to be some change, some, but they don't even know, they, people don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is you've got to start with the conversation first. You've got to be comfortable not being, um, uncomfortable with the conversation. Once you start having the conversation, everything else will fall into place. And in a sense, part of the pressure I've been under within the black diaspora, is to help generate that conversation. And since George Floyd, I've had a lot of that conversation, people are ringing me all the time Mm. to say, you know, and and I'm saying, just have the conversation in industry. So the the pressure you're
0: describing has to do with, in a way, you becoming the recipient or the listener. Well, other people work through their own complicated relationships, relationships mm-hmm. with race, race and mm-hmm. practice, and the kind of work. Involved on your part to do that, to be that audience, to
1: be <laughs> to part, be part of, of that audience, audience. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and it's and a it's positive thing, thing, but it's also it's a laborious, laborious thing. thing. Yes.
0: I want to leave this part of the conversation for a moment because you've probably have it, have had it many times before. I think we've all heard it to some yeah. extent already. Yeah. I want to f- steer onto a different path that's parallel to this. Okay. That has to do with design's relationship to social circumstances. Mm. This is a topic that you framed a recent presentation you gave at the AA through. That there is a concern on your end of how design is insulated from human experience and social circumstance. Yes. And where I want to go now is the other end of design, Mm. construction. Yes. And if we're talking about morality and practice, if we're talking about ethics and practice, the other side of that coin has to do with ethics and the way in which a project is realized. Yes. Not only from the design end, but from the... The construction end of things. And so you can see where I'm going to go. I want to talk about the HADAR Cultural Center i Baku back here, because I feel like it's emblematic of a struggle that architects and engineers are constantly facing now. Yes. In terms of addressing um, the social issues around any given project, whether it's supply chains whether it's labor and construction materials human cabinet. rights yes and when we look at the Heydar Center in Baku which is a project by Zaha Hadid Architects yes and was exposed for the kind of human rights violations that yes. led to its realization yes. and for the fact that the building itself while very beautiful, while award-winning, while being incredibly innovative, was built off the back of forced evictions, physical violence in some cases, yes. a huge slew of human rights violations. And obviously, your role as the engineer is peripheral. And even the architect's role, as Zaha Hadid herself argued, is also peripheral that to her these weren't her problems to solve and i mean the building was given many accolades it won awards from all kind of corners of the design culture i think the design museum gave it its top honors in 2014 where the panel unanimously selected it and in a way drew this division between design the quality of the project as a piece of design and the social circumstances around its realization. I just wonder. No, I think
1: it's a very, it's a very, very important point, really. What do you do with that? Oh no, I, I, if I'm, I've got very clear, I've got very clear on these issues. Mm-hmm. When we started AKT, Adams Taylor, we had a job for the military to look at the what do you call it, the helicopters, the big helicopters, I think? And they pretty much gave us the job, and we said no. And there was a whole, this was with the government design team, they've all abolished now, it's all gone. And we said no, and they said, and we made a rule that we were not going to do any military projects. There's a huge amount of engineering innovation in the military. Honestly, it's off the scale. But we just said, no, we're not going there. And that's always stuck in our minds, in my mind. Then we come to the complex social issues in terms of public buildings. and I, I mean, the Idehaliv project, I, I ran that. And when that project started, we were asked to do that project. I was very excited about it because of the form and everything, the seismic sound. But then, Zah was going through the the, the the issues you just described in terms of a very strict regime and everything. And I'll be honest, I was having doubts about it from a social point of view. Then she said something which I thought, that's it, she's got this right. She's saying, the regime is a blip, I'm paraphrasing, it's a blip in a social life of a building of this scale. The usage of the building, of what, it's not a a gestapo camp or a a prison for dissidents or anything. This is a public building where you've got a theater, a library, a museum. I can, you know, this is a public building. And the regime is already gone. (laughs) Mm. The building is now one of the most used photograph buildings because she did something that was a beautiful public building. There's certain things you will not, for me, socially, I will not get involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, if if even if this government in this social condition comes up and say oh we'd like to build a new headquarters for the SES or something or whatever the answer would be no and the same way if a dictator somewhere says I want you to build me my next palace the answer is no you know that's a position but if it's a building which I believe is actually Providing something for the public, and it's going to be there for the public, who are not the regime. Then I don't have a problem with it.
0: I mean, it just makes me realize you're talking about rhetoric earlier, and how it's kind of secondary to the the, the design work you do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, buildings are rhetorical devices. They stand for. Something. Something. They stand for the systems of power that enable them to be.
1: But then those systems of power comes along and they repurpose those buildings. Mm-hmm. You only have to look at historically in Istanbul, churches changing to mosque and mosques changing to churches. That's a social condition changing the use of the building. And I think we're now going through an evolution. Uh, or, or yeah, evolution in terms of structure mm. where we now have the tools to totally repurposed buildings, Mm. not just in terms of their usage, but even in their physical form, which we didn't before. It was always an area where nobody wanted to go to. And if I'm being honest, as a practice, we, I was one of the first people to really push that boundary beyond the normal.
0: This is interesting because it's making me realize how this long view of design, um, this understanding of the the longevity of a structure, in a way, for you, it's what enabled you to survive as an engineer
1: in the first place. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good, you know, that's perceptive.
0: I guess there is one more question. Yeah. If you have time. Yeah, I've got time. I'm fine. And it's about the the future of engineering. Oh, it's
1: very bright. I can go on about the future of engineering.
0: And its relationship with architecture. I mean, you're at the point now in your leadership of the practice where you have potentially the broadest view possible of the discipline you work in. Mm. You're at the highest level and you can see the farthest potentially. And I wonder when you look out at the horizon, of engineering and these new frontiers what you see
1: and how you're preparing for it? I would like to say talking about the wider industry of structural engineering or engineering that the building industry is the least prepared for the future we've got a huge amount of materials Thirty thousand materials we can work with. We we'll probably work with ten or twelve. Mm. Experimentation is, is almost like anathema. In terms of structures and whatever with materials, the codes don't allow, restricts what you can do, unless it's got 600 agram or certificates. Nobody wants to do it. Everybody's scared to do it. That is where the challenge is. But to get to that challenge, you get to, you got to mentor and train a new generation of engineers. And those new generation of engineers have got their basic skills from the universities. But we then need to train them to think differently, to start addressing the long-term issues of what we've got to deal with. And that to me is where the question, that's what the, the subject is. It's not longer just about embodied carbon and reducing. Energy is the currency of the future. And that energy is not just electrical power, or gas power, or hydrogen. The energy and materials, how do we get all of them to work together? That, to me, is where we should be thinking. But we need to change the thought process of our next generation of engineers mm-hmm. and designers. And you need to throw that pebble onto that lake to say, this is where the future is. This is where you should, be. should be also be looking at this. And in a way, that's what I'm trying to do. Hmm. albert thank you so much for your time that's all right that's okay
0: oh what a pleasure i really i feel like i have to shake your hand <laughs> can i give you a hug I mean, it's... <laughs> no, that's okay. yeah. scaffold is a podcast from the architecture foundation i'm matthew blunderfield and i produce the show the theme music is composed and performed by luke blair Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Albert Williamson Taylor. Thanks as always to Scandalin and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.